Good morning, and Alan is going to open our class with prayer for us this morning. Dear God, thank you very much for a beautiful Sabbath day. We appreciate the opportunity to come and learn about you, learn about a beautiful picture of you. We pray for Tim and his adventures in getting out in the next few weeks and pray that open doors will continue to come open for your picture of God. We each have individuals that we are thinking about and praying for, whether they're friends or enemies or relatives, and I pray that uh, you'll take everybody's prayer request into your thinking and your thoughts. Again, be with us today. Be with uh, Tim. We appreciate you. Amen. 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 We are doing uh, starting our last quarter. The new quarterly is entitled Atonement. And the cross of Christ, a great uh, subject matter and obviously something we could uh, you know, spend months and months on. So as we go through it this, this quarter, let's just keep the questions flying and the minds thinking as we go, th- go through this. The uh, first uh, lesson this quarter is called God's Nature, the Basis of Atonement. And before we actually even get into the quarterly, I thought it would be nice for us to just establish a foundation on what biblical definition of atonement is and what the biblical definition of atonement is not. So what, what are your thoughts? The biblical definition of atonement, what is it and what is, is it not? Making us one again with Christ, God. Did you all hear that? Biblical atonement is, is making us one. Making us one with God, one with a loyal a heavenly host, one with each other, bringing us back into unity, back in oneness. What is biblical atonement not? Appeasement. Appeasement. Any other any other thoughts that it's not? Expiation. Pardon? Payment. Payment. Legal debt paid off. Yes. What evidences do we have that we're on the right track in this class that atonement is unification or unity or oneness or harmony and not appeasements and payment and expiation? We don't want to just you know make our proclamations and claims. We want to look at evidence. What evidence do we have we're on the right track? The life of Christ. See, the life of Christ is used by those who purport a appeasement and payment model. Isn't his life used for that as well? Don't they look at Christ and say, look, he died on the cross to pay the penalty? Yeah. So I agree with you, but specifically, what about the life of Christ would lead us in the direction we're going? He's here to reveal God. Okay, his words. If you see me, you've seen the Father. And then how did he treat people? Neither do I condemn you. At the end, when he was on the cross, or at the Last Supper, he said, I have fulfilled, I have done what you sent me to do. I have made you known. John 17, I've made you known, I've revealed you to the world. Okay, excellent. Other thoughts? God never changes. He's always been loved. He didn't have to have anyone to change him to love us. Okay. On the lesson, on page three, when it's explaining what this is about, yes, it says, We should never give the impression that the death of Christ was needed in order to persuade God to love us. God sent Christ to die for us because he already loved us. The biblical doctrine of atonement is grounded in God's love for sinful and rebellious creatures. No question. I think that was one of the statements that Quarterly said beautifully and quite correctly. No question that the death of Christ was not needed to get God to love us. Does that mean that that paragraph answers the position that some point out that it certainly wasn't needed to get God to love us. God loved us, but Christ had to die so God in his love could legally save us. 
It was a legal requirement. God loved us, and he had to meet the legal requirements in order to save us. So it wasn't in order to get him to love us. It was in order to meet legal requirements and pay legal debts. To forgive us. In order to forgive us. You see, that statement is designed to do away with a criticism that comes from those of us who see a larger view and those of us who see that the appeasement, atonement, traditional pagan model, payment, payment model, undermines the idea that God loves us. So they stick that statement in there, which we all resonate with. That's right. Death of Christ was not designed to get God to love us. But what they don't say is, what about the idea that the death was necessary in order for God to be legally able to be forgiving or legally able to save us? There was a legal requirement to pay a legal debt. It doesn't say anything about that, does it? No. And they leave that unsaid. That's his justice. Yeah, see, he's not only loving, see, he's loving. But then justice required a payment be made, you see. Is that true? Yeah. I'm not sure if it was in the... Uh, Mount, Sermon on the Mount, whatever, but Jesus said at one point, be perfect even as your Father in Heaven is perfect. So I think essentially what people who are driving at, at the position that you're referring to are trying to do is get humanity into a position of perfection so that they can come before God or so that they can, you know, um, have eternal life or whatever. And Essentially, that's where the confusion begins as far as I'm concerned. You know, just trying to make humanity perfect. And, of course, the Catholics trying to make Jesus perfect. Uh, they have a, a shrine in, in uh, Washington, D.C. called the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. Does anybody know whose, whose conception that had that referred to? Mary's. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and well, her, her mother had to be perfect enough to have Mary so that Mary could be perfect when she had Jesus. Yeah, we, yeah and that's a whole, maybe we should talk about that at some point. We won't right now. Um, <laughs> because let's go back to the question of atonement. In the Bible, the word translated in English in the Old Testament, you'll find atonement used a lot. When you read in the Levitical law, talking about all the sacrifices they had to do, this will be an atonement. This is a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement, 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 all over the place. The Hebrew word translated in, in the Old Testament is a Hebrew word called kafar. K-A-P-H-A-R, and it actually means atone, purge, forgive, reconcile. Those are the definitions of this word. Atone, purge, forgive, reconcile. And the Greek word in in Romans 3.25, and uh, you know this is a famous text that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement in Romans 3.25. The word sacrifice of atonement in this particular word Greek New Testament is the word hilasterion, and it actually is the word for the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. The lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And so you get the same word over in Hebrews 9.5, and this is a quote from Hebrews 9.5. It says, Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. And the word atonement cover is hilasterion. So you have the same word there, atonement cover. In Romans 3.25, it's translated sacrifice of atonement. Well, it actually means he presented him as the lid on the ark. But when you read that, what Jesus was presented as the lid on the ark, what does that mean to you? Well, I think it all means that we have to be changed. And and from our selfish ways, and the, the cross is a great demonstration that moves us 
to want to be born again. Yeah, no question we have to be changed, no question about it. Um, the question is, though, Christ was presented as the, quote, sacrifice of atonement, the hilasterion, the lid, to somehow achieve that change. How does that work? Yes. Didn't the, uh, the lid on the ark represent the, the connecting piece between the, the glory of God above and the, the Ten Commandments and the, what was in the ark below? Uh, that's how I see it. I wasn't planning on going all the Old Testament sim- symbolism here today. But as I understand it, the box in the ark, the box, which was made of acacia wood, covered in gold, that box itself, I understand, represents the converted peoples of the world who are reconciled in unity with God. Because what's in the box? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. So in the Old Testament, you have the law in this box. Where in the New Covenant is the law, according to Hebrews? In our I will write the law in the heart and mind. So this represents the heart and mind. And if you look at the progression of how it came, what was it in that box that went into the box first? There was three things. It was the law, the manna, and the rod that budded. What were the, and what order did they go into the box? Well, I think it's the law. Nope. The manna. Manna went in the ark first. Manna came before Sinai, if you remember. They were getting manna before Sinai, and they put manna in the ark first. What, what did Jesus say the manna represents? Explicitly said, the bread of heaven. Who's the bread of heaven? He says, I am the bread of heaven. I'm the bread that have come down from heaven. Okay? So the bread of heaven is also the word. He is the word, the living word. The word was made flesh, right? That dwelt among us. So Christ is the word. We have to take the word or the truth about God into our hearts first in order to have the lies removed and won back to trust. Without the word, without the truth, without the knowledge of God, we can't be one to trust. So the manna comes into the heart first. The truth about God is revealed in Jesus Christ. He comes first. And then as we trust him, we open the heart and trust. The next thing that goes in is the law. So as in trust, as we've seen the words, the truth has come in. We've opened the heart. Lord, I trust you. I see now who you really are. You've revealed yourself to me. Awesome. You're incredible. I open my heart. I trust you, Lord. Do what you will in my life. And what, what does he will? I will write my law in your heart and mind. Uh, he writes in our hearts his character, his law. That's the next thing that comes. And the third thing was the rod that budded. Well, the rod was a dead stick that came to life and brought forth fruit. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but after we've come to trust, after we've seen the truth, after we've partaken of the word, the manna, after he's written the law in our hearts and regenerated us to be like him, then we come to life and bring forth peaceable fruits of righteousness, bring forth fruits of Christ-like character. And so the, the box represents the heart of the converted people. The Shekinah represents the Father. The, the angels represent the angelic host. And what is it that connects it all together is that solid piece of gold, solid gold, No wood. It's not humanity covered in gold with Christ-like character, which is the box. That's the wood covered in gold. It's solid gold is the lid, and that is Jesus Christ. And he is the connecting link, and it says all things in heaven to earth will be reconciled to Christ at the cross. He is the point where all become one. So we have the angelic host connected to Christ. We have the Father who is obviously one with Christ, and we have us connected with Christ. So all things are brought back into oneness, at one the atonement box, the unity box, everything brought back into one. So that's what I understand the lid to represent. So when it says he presented him in the lid, it means he presented him as the way and means of bringing the universe back into unity, back into oneness, connecting us all back to God again. That's what it means. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's really kind of cool as you understand it. So my translation of the text is simply, God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration. Now, through trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed in Christ's eye, we may partake of the remedy procured by Christ. And that's the simple meaning. He just, through Christ, everything's brought back into unity.
Are there other evidences that we are still on the right track? Well, John 17, Jesus, when he prayed, said to his father, right before his crucifixion, I have given them the glory that you gave me. What is the glory? Yes, I've given them your character. I've given them the truth about you, your character of love, your self-sacrifice, your service. Greater love is no man than to give his life for his friend. After all, power was given to Jesus in John 13. He got down on his knees and began washing feet. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as you and I are one. I in them, and you in me. You see the connecting lid? I'm in them, you're in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is at-one-ment, atonement. In the Old English, they used to say, at-one. Have you ever heard of a word, A-L-O-N-E? How do you say that word? Alone. Not all one. It's alone, atone. Do you hear it? At-hone. At-one, uh, I'm all one. I'm alone. That's how the, the language used to be spoken. And the, the spoken language really meant, back in the day of 1611, at tone meant being at one. And so when two people were at war, two people were, were at odds with each other, the uh, person who would be the, the one to bring reconciliation would say, you know, I'm going to go at one them. Those guys are fighting with each other. I'm going to go make them one. O-N-E. Bring them to unity. In the introduction to the study guide, it tells the story of a man whose life was changed when he heard these words. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Class, what do those words mean? We hear these words all the time from preachers, don't we? What do they mean? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. His life. His love motivates me. His love motivates me. His life, what? I think that that means that, that Christ is the chief cornerstone and we can build our lives on that fact, free from guilt. Too much that we're so busy to keep asking forgiveness, asking forgiveness, asking forgiveness, but we don't, build, we don't go forward from there. We don't take it that we have forgiveness and go forward as forgiven. We're still carrying the, or dragging the baggage behind us. That I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Oh, I like that, yeah. Building on that and, and saying, I'm a child of God, I'm an heir. Let's do this different now. Let's let's go ahead, let's let's go help somebody. Or let Christ use me to do this, even though I'm not worthy. But because his forgiveness is complete, then I can do that. So what you're describing there is a change in the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world, the way we see God, a mental perspective shift or change. Truth is coming into our minds to enlighten us to a, a higher and better reality. Isn't that what you're describing? Yes. The Bible says that we're created lower than the angels, but through Christ, we're elevated higher than if we'd never sinned. So the blood of Christ... Christ cleanses us from all that. So what does the blood represent? Life. His life. His life. If it hadn't been for his perfect life, his death would not have meant anything. Okay, so he had to have a perfect life. Yes. And if it hadn't been for his death, would his life have meant anything? No. Why? Why not? He demonstrated who God really is by, at, at no time even when he was being tortured by us, did he think of killing us. He was only even at the cross thinking about that the people who are killing him are killing themselves through killing me. 
and he was also thinking about his mother. Even we see at the cross somebody who's being killed, and yet his only thought is for the well-being of even the people who are killing him, and for his family. Yes, all that is true, and it's showing his perfection of character, isn't it? So, and so, when you see that kind of God who does that when he's being killed by us, then it's the kind of thing where we lose, we can lose our our suspicion of him, our fear of him, and we can when we see that the blood, his blood was shed in that manner, that he, he handled himself that way, even at that extremity, we can love a God like that. We can trust a God like that. And when we do, then we allow a God like that to enter our hearts and make the changes we need to be done. So we see that God is love. We see his grace. We see his giving. We see all these good things that win us to trust. But yet the wages of sin is death. And if he didn't die, then our payment hasn't been made. And we're going to still have to die even though we trust him. Blood means life. Without blood, we have no life. Without Christ, what would his death mean without his resurrection? Like that, too. How could Christ rise if the payment for sin, if the penalty of sin is death? And that is not, it, the Bible doesn't say the wages of sin is sleep, does it? Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth sleep. Does, in the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely sleep. God didn't say those things, did he? So it's death, which is how long, how long is this death? The death that is the wages of sin, how long? Forever, okay. So if Christ paid a forever death, why did he rise again? He defeated death. Oh, yeah, he defeated death. Uh, Stanley. I was just going to say that it is the fulfillment or the actualization of the Old Testament system. It is a way that we understand how, how that you know, early representation actually comes to life and is actualized for us. Is that old system misunderstood often so that we actually draw other conclusions about it, like the ones I'm you know, putting forth right now? That Christ came, uh, God, uh, God's justice required a payment, uh, legal requirements had to be met in order for God. God is loving. He's not, Christ didn't die to get God to love us, but God loved us so much he sent Christ to pay our debt so we wouldn't have to pay the debt. You've heard that. And that death penalty is eternal death. Well, Frankly, did Christ die that? You see how, how many huge problems there are with this theory? Huge. Number one, if he rose again, that means that my penalty hasn't been paid. If we use that logic and that theory. Because Christ didn't die eternally. Yeah, and then people will come back and say, yeah, but he thought he was going to. It felt like he was going to. And because he thought he was going to and felt like he was going to, well, then, then that counts. Really? If we have somebody on death row in the United States and, and we take them into the death chamber and we inject them with, uh, with the lethal injection, they feel the poison burning their veins and they can feel they're their, their, their getting foggy and blurry and they, and they lose consciousness and they're gone. But actually we had an anesthesiologist put them to sleep for three days and they wake them up three days later. Would we say, well, that's okay, he thought he was going to die. That's the same as a death penalty. <laughs> would, we, would we let that fly? No. Well, you mean we have better justice standards than God does? <laughs> How about this one? Somebody is uh, sentenced to death for a crime that they've committed, and they have an innocent brother who's never done any crime, and the brother says, I'd like to give my life, and you can kill me and let my brother who's done the crime go free. But we say, well, that would definitely be justice then. Justice allows for us to kill an innocent person in place of the guilty. Is that justice? Is it, God run his universe that way, going around killing the innocent in favor of the wicked. That's what we're saying. Killing the only truly innocent ever, it's unjust. It's a twisted, distorted, perverse picture of God that comes from paganism. 
But yet Christ still had to die. Why did he have to die? He still had to die. We couldn't have been saved without his death. So don't anybody leave here saying, boy, that Dr. Jim Jennings, man, he teaches wasn't necessary for Christ. Absolutely not. Christ had to die. We couldn't have been saved without him. But why? If he had not died, he would have loved himself more than he loved us. Oh, now we're getting down to it, aren't we? He would have been acting like Satan. And this goes to the fallacy. This goes to another. See, Satan attacks in multiple different directions. He attacks God's trustworthiness. That wasn't what he did in heaven with the angels. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. God isn't trustworthy. He can't believe him. He continues that track because if we don't trust him, it doesn't matter what God has done for us. If we don't trust him, we won't let him do for us, will we? So he continues that track. He also tried to prevent Christ from coming, whether you realize it or not. He tried to obstruct that avenue. He tried to shut down and get everybody in the world on Satan's side and nobody willing to work with God. And therefore, no one would would be there to, to receive Christ when he came. He tried to get that. God worked to keep that avenue open by bringing the flood when there was only one righteous man on the earth. The avenue for the Savior got very, very narrow. He tried all these mechanisms. He couldn't keep Christ from coming. He tried to kill Christ as an infant, by the way. Did he not? Herod? decree, try to kill the newborn babes? If the model is simply payment of legal debt by the perfect blood sacrifice of the innocent, sinless Son of God, well, couldn't that have all been met with an infant being killed? We have the innocent Son of God who's sinless, born on the earth in human form, and they're ready to kill him, shed his blood. If that's all that was needed, well, then God certainly could have allowed that to happen and saved, well, think about all the misery Christ could have avoided. Just shed the blood and let's go back home. That's not what was needed. Payment was not needed of a blood sacrifice. What was needed was victory over sin itself. Destruction of the lies that Satan had told about God, which required Christ to reveal the truth in his life, but also victory or healing, restoring in humanity God's nature, God's character, overcoming the impact, the defects that sin has caused, curing the condition, if you want to use those words. And so this goes back to now one of the other lies that Satan has told to help us miss what God has done for us, which goes back to the Immaculate Conception idea. Everybody understand what that means? The Immaculate Conception idea comes from this theory. Sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. And people go, yeah, it's true. You know, sin can't exist there. Well, it's not true. Where did sin begin? With who? With Lucifer. And what position did Lucifer occupy? Next to God. Next to God. I mean, he was sinning in God's presence. Was he not? Okay, this is a lie. It's a subtle little lie that sounds so good. Sin can't exist in God's presence. And since Christ is God, he couldn't be born into the womb of a sinner because she couldn't survive if that was really God in her womb. So she had to be sinless herself in order to be the receptacle to receive the sinless God into the world so that he could come and pay the payment of the perfect blood sacrifice to appease God's anger and wrath. This is all paganism. All of it. Paganism. No. Mary was a sinner. Galatians chapter 4, 4. That Christ was born of a woman under law. The law of sin and death. Mary needed a Savior just like us. She was not sinless. Everybody agree? Yes. Absolutely. Okay? Which means that Christ is this unique being in all universal history. Christ wasn't like Adam. Adam formed out of the dust of the ground. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a perfect sinless being. Eve taken from his side, another sinless being. Did Jesus Christ come into the world that way? No. no. Did you or I come into the world that way? No. No. We come from a sinful mother and a sinful father. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms chapter 51. Did Jesus come into the world that way, with a sinful mother and sinful father? No. Notice, he's not like Adam, he's not like Eve, he's not like you and me either. He's unique. He's the one of a kind, unique being. He was born of a sinful mother, 
but his father was God himself. And thus in Jesus Christ, the two antagonistic principles, God's principles of self-sacrificing love, written in the heart and character of man when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, which had been removed when they chose to act selfishly, and Satan's principles of survival of fittest became man's nature. We are now all self-centered and interested in self and act to protect self. These two principles were able to battle it out in the person, Jesus Christ, in his human walk. And you notice Jesus, it says in... Uh, Hebrews 4, uh, 15, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And James 1 says, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Now, how many of you have ever been tempted from passionate or powerful feelings within you? Feelings to act in self-interest, feelings of fear, feelings of insecurity, feelings of passion of some kind. How many have ever had a temptation from within themselves? Come on, if you don't raise your hand, you're not alive. Okay? All right. That's it's, it's, it's our human nature. Jesus, the Bible says, was tempted in every way just like we are, and we are tempted in that way. That means Jesus had to have a humanity subject to like passions as us, yet without sin. Do we see that in Gethsemane that he experienced overwhelming emotions that tempted him? That if he followed his emotions, would Jesus have gone through the cross or would he have acted, as what was just said, to save himself? What was his emotions tempting him to do? Exactly right. This is the root of sin. So in Jesus Christ, the two antagonistic principles meted out in his mind, in his heart, and he has to choose, am I going to act with these overwhelming feelings to save self or am I going to choose to give myself in love? No one can take my life. I will give it freely. And the reason Christ had to die is because, think it through, any way, any point along the path of death's approach, if Christ exercised his power to stop death's approach, who did he save? Self-saving. Self 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 it wasn't self-sacrificing anymore. It wasn't love winning. It was selfishness and survival of fitness winning. Christ could not save himself and save us as well. And so, as what was said several times in here, the Timothy text, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, or 1.10, says um, that Christ destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. Hebrews 2.14, he took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So Christ's death was not an appeasement. Christ's death was the means that God had to restore his perfect law of love back into the human species and simultaneously destroy Satan and his power and the infection of selfishness which brings death. He destroyed death and restored, restored perfect life into the human species. Yes? It seems to me that the way you're explaining this would be about the only way you could actually uh, go into an intelligent discussion with uh, Islamic people who seem to reject any idea of substitution. And how we're able to understand this? We're able to understand this because we understand first, as a physician, one of the things they teach us is how to diagnose. Because if diagnosis is wrong, then treatment is usually wrong. And what happens in the great body of religious thought, regardless of religious background, and the great body of Christian thought, is that we have a treatment plan that we purport and put out there without having first diagnosed the problem. Because what is the assumed problem? We have sin. That's the problem. And what is sin? Transgression of the law. And what's the problem with transgression of the law? God's offended. God's offended. God's mad. God has to punish. God will rain wrath down. And that's the diagnosis. Well, we need a fix for that. What's the fix? Well, we can't keep the law. 
We can't appease God's wrath. We have to have Christ come to do what we can do to make the payment of our legal debt. Wrong diagnosis. In order to diagnose, though, before we can actually diagnose sickness, did you all know that physicians have to understand what wellness looks like? If you don't know what wellness looks like, then you don't know when something's abnormal. If you don't know what the normal parameters are, you don't know what abnormal looks like. Isn't that true? And so before we can even diagnose what sin is, we have to know what righteousness is. And this, of course, is one of the reasons Christ came. He revealed what wellness looks like. What does love actually look like? Christ revealed it to us. That's what wellness looks like. He is the standard. He reveals what love looks like. The, the Ten Commandments, by the way, were an instrument given to us by God to help us also diagnose our sickness, to reveal to us where we fall short of God's standard of love. And basically, as you all know, and I'm not going to go through it again, the law of love is not, a, is not an emotion. It is a principle of life. Life is designed to operate upon it. Other-centered giving, the principle of outward flow of goodness towards another, is when you give away carbon dioxide to the plants and the plants give oxygen back to you, the circle of giving, just constant giving. And as you freely give away your carbon dioxide, you freely get back oxygen and you just keep on living. Just keep on living. If you decide I'm not going to give anymore, I'm going to keep it for myself, which you're free to do. You do not have to give away your carbon dioxide. You have a choice. You can tie a plastic bag over your head and make sure you don't give any more away. But the only way to do that is to die. You see, the law of love is the law of life. And when the law of love is broken, the only consequence without divine intervention is death. The wages of sin is death. And so Christ came to fix the broken law, the principle of love, put love back in the heart so that we will operate again in harmony with what life is designed to operate upon. And the only way to do that was to destroy the infection that breaks it. Now, how does love get broken? How did love get broken in the heart? Believing a lie. Yes, married couples, if you have somebody tell you a lie that your spouse is cheating, even though they're not, if you believe the lie, there's something inside you change. Notice that. Something changes if you believe your spouse is cheating, even if they're not, even if your spouse is loyal. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness, known as survival of the fittest. This is how Satan got his power over the race. He told lies about God, which we believed. We no longer trusted him. We instead ran and hid from him because we were afraid of him. We began to act in self-interest because we couldn't trust him to watch out for us anymore because we believe lies about him. Lisa? Isn't that the condition that Eve was in? She was standing at the tree and wanting more. She wanted something more than God had already given her. And, and that's an example of the married couple. As soon as you want more than what you have, go oh. outside that relationship and look for it. Only after she accepted the lie. Mm -hmm. She didn't want more before she believed the lie about God that he was keeping something back from her. Right. Yeah. So the lie came first. More. Yes. The lie about God came first. And, and I wanted to say something about Jesus' death. Um, he never lost his connection to God. Isn't that correct? from when he was born until he died on the cross. And that was really what killed him was that he was no longer connected to God, and that's what kills us. As soon as we lose our connection, our love for God, we can't survive anymore, and so we die. So he was made, exactly right. He was born with, in his heart and mind, the circle of love never was broken. But at the cross, at the, the weekend at Gethsemane... His spirit didn't really die, did it? Didn't it go back to God and hers? No, I... Exact. Christ said, um, this is why he was able to rise again. He said, don't be afraid of those who can destroy the body, but be afraid of those who can destroy the body and soul. 
Remember that? The word soul in Greek is psyche. It means your identity, your individuality, your mind. Christ did not have his individuality, his identity destroyed at the cross. He had his body killed at the cross. But the person he is, he rose again. This same Jesus went into heaven, as you knew. Okay, So Jesus was the same when he resurrected. And the reason he was able to rise again and not have his individuality destroyed is because there was nothing in him but pure love and character of God. However, on the cross, I do believe, when he was made to be sin, he experienced in his psyche, in his mind, he experienced the separation from his father that he had never known before. And this is why his suffering was greater than everyone else. See, we have these other distortions, like every sin ever committed in past, present, and future was placed upon Christ at the cross, and that's why his suffering was so great. That's not why his suffering was so great. Imagine you, uh, you guys in the room here, if I told you, hey, you guys, we are going to forbid you from ever, ever spending any time with Osama bin Laden. You can't visit with him. You can't talk with him. You can't, you can't go bowling with him. You can't spend any time with old Osama. How, how much are you going to grieve and cry about that? How about if you're told you never get to see your spouse again? Does that hit you differently or your child again? Never, ever again. They're being taken from you. You can never spend time with them again. You see, isn't it true that the more you love somebody, the more it hurts when you're separated from them? Okay, Christ and Father were one from all eternity, from all eternity. The intimacy and love is beyond our full ability to comprehend. And so when that relationship was broken up, the agony and the torment is, be, is infinite, is beyond our ability to comprehend. It wasn't because all the sins of all the world of all time were placed upon him and he suffered the weight of all those sins. It was because the unity with his Father was broken up. And that's the infinite agony that he suffered. The more we divinity die? Of course divinity did not die. Yes. And, and didn't didn't God have to withdraw his uh, intervention and his protection. protection and presence from Christ so that Christ could completely defeat that's right. selfishness in, in his humanity? And that's another thing that I believe that when he was made to be sin, you know, you know in all your experience, think about the times when you had those powerful emotions come upon you to act selfishly. We've all had them. Even at those times when it's most intense, you and I still are under the umbrella of God's grace. His Spirit is still there striving in your heart and my heart to help us turn to the right path. His angels are there to, to, to woo us, to convict us, to protect us. I mean, we have all God's agencies still working for us when we're fighting that battle. But Christ tread the winepress alone. He was abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a point in time, as I understand it, when Christ was left to fight this battle with the temptation to act in self-interest without the divine aid of his father or the angelic host. He did it with his human mind. Isn't that God's wrath? God's wrath was the abandonment or letting him go, as it says in Romans. So the way God treats Christ and the wicked are the same. How did God treat Christ? He let him go to reap what Christ had chosen for himself, and Christ chose to go through this path, and God let him have it. The wicked, in the end, choose to go a path away from God and to, to reject God and to refuse reconciliation with God, and God sets them free to let them have their choice. So God's action is one of letting go to reap the choices we've made. But the, the choices we made result in different outcomes if we make different choices. So Christ chose to destroy and defeat sin. The wicked are overcome and destroyed by sin. How would Christ's decisions have led him, like, because sinners, they eventually destroy their conscience so much that God is no longer going to work on them. 
and that's why God lets them go, right? But Christ was making decisions that reflected God's character. That's right. How is it that he was making decisions that would lead him up to God letting him go? Because what, what had to happen in order for the human race to be saved is that the infection to act in self-interest, that fear and selfish mode that we all have, had to be confronted and overcome by love. And it says, for the joy set before him, Christ gave his life. No one can take my life from him. He wasn't like the two helpless thieves up there. That once he was nailed up there, he didn't have a choice. He had at any time, at his direct disposal, the power to call to an end. Did he not? So what does it say that he didn't? It was a constant, moment-to-moment choice. And the interesting thing was, as I understand it, Christ didn't have to actually speak words to bring it to an end. He just had to think it in his mind, be gone, and they would have been wiped out. It wasn't even in his mind to harm us. It wasn't even in his mind to save himself. Uh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what was in his mind. But the, the difference in the choices, like she was saying, the wicked make, and Christ make it. Christ made his choices unselfishly. That's right. The wicked make theirs selfishly. It's all about saving self. That's right for them. Yes. Isn't it almost like we had a split personality happen when sin entered us? Uh, oneness with God was now destroyed. We now became two, and we're fighting that. Um, well, actually... That is like the id or the ego that's always fighting against what you really want to do, like Paul says in, in the Bible, I never do what I... That split that you're describing is, is actually God's grace. When man sinned, there was no split. When man sinned, they were in total 100% harmony with Satan. But you read right after that, God said in Eden, in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So it's God's Holy Spirit working on our heart, giving us a desire for good that is not naturally there to the sinful state. So there is that split, but it's not natural. Is that oneness with God, listening to the Spirit, and that instead of that selfish person. Exactly right. Exactly right. All right, let's jump to Tuesday's lesson. In the second paragraph, somebody read the second paragraph. starts the Bible explicitly. The Bible explicitly states that God created and sustains everything through the power of His Son. The atonement is God's solution to the problem of sin within this creation. Instead of leaving us to reap the ultimate rewards of sin and rebellion, which would be eternal ruin, He instituted the plan of salvation. And when it says this creation in that sentence... Is it talking just about earth? The atonement is just for earth? No. Or, maybe they're talking about that. Yeah, the, the author maybe, but it, in the Bible, when the Bible speaks of Christ's death, is, it, is Christ's death and the purpose of Christ's death just for the earth beings alone? No. No. Any Bible verse support that? I will draw all Okay. When I am lifted up, I will draw all unto me. If you read your Bibles, it will say all men. The word men is supplied. It's not in the Greek. The Greek says, I'll just draw all into me. It's a good one. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. By him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and all things together hold together in him. And then the next verse, it says, in verse 20, it says, well, somebody just look it up. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. There you go. Through him, through Christ. So I wanted to read these first verses so you see we're talking about Christ. And through Christ, he reconciles to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, are reconciled to Christ through the cross. So heavenly things are being reconciled. So we have a Bible support for this um, that we can really feel confident about that. 
says that, that they needed the cross as much as man. Somebody read the bottom pink section, the pink section, bottom section there in Tuesday's lesson. Is there something that you personally have created and sustained? Something that you put a lot of work and care into? In what ways does your act of creating it give you ownership over it? How do you feel about what you have made? How, in a small way, might this comparison help us understand that we mean what we mean to God, our Creator? Okay, the, the idea of creatorship ownership. I've got some questions for you. If we were to create artificial intelligence, which we are working on to do as humans right now, artificial intelligence, and we wanted that artificial intelligence to genuinely and completely and truly and actually love us, what would we have to do in order for that AI to love us? Freedom of choice. Do you understand the AI would have to be free, wouldn't it? in order for it to actually be able to love us. If we set it genuinely free, this AI that we've created, would that mean we still own it? Yeah, if you set it free, oh, if we truly it set it free, we would have to allow it the, the liberty to kill us. Would it be our property still? No. no. Hmm. Do you notice, uh, didn't it say something about um, you know, God's ownership? If we created the AI, wouldn't we have the right to own it? We'd have the right. We're not talking about God's right to own us. We're talking about God's providence or God's choices and how he acts. He certainly has the right. He's the creator. Of course he has the right. But does he act towards us as owner? Or does he set us genuinely free at the cross? Do you see how free we are that God would rather let his creatures kill him than use his power to stop us? That's freedom. Yes. We use the word belong a lot. To me, I mean, we, we say, I own this, or this belongs to me. And to me, the word belong uh, feels more like what God may be saying there. You belong to me. We belong together. You know, we are, we are family. Not an ownership of I own this chair or whatever. It's a belonging. We're talking about something we've created now. We've created some AI. We've worked, worked, worked years, and we've got this uh, programming going. We've got this robot we've made. We've, we've created this artificial intelligence. We have the right to own it. If we sustain that right, exercise our right, and therefore command obedience from the AI, can the AI ever love us in that atmosphere? Does God command our obedience? Or does he genuinely set us free, giving us the choice to obey or not to obey? Now, if you created artificial intelligence, where did you get the resources, the ability, and the intelligence from to do that? From yourself or from God? From God. If the resources to create came from God, then does that mean God created it? It's not a trick question. It's something you should think about. Because this is often put forth. Whatever we create is God's, you know, God created. Hmm. If you created a computer program that is designed to wreak havoc and cause damage and destruction, hacking people's computers and, you know, all the things that people do, if you create that computer program, could we say, where did the resources and the intelligence and the ability to do that come from? Did the ability for you to do that come from God? Yes. Yes. Does that mean God created that program? No, he did not. Now we're going to get into the deep stuff. We were in the shallow water, now we're going into the deep water. What about your child? 
Who created your child in your image? You did. Did God in heaven determine who you would share your gametes with? No. Did God use his power to create via nothing a new life that became your child? Or did you, via the abilities God gave you, create your child? What implications does that have in how we think about these issues? How we give freedom to our children. I read books very commonly in Christian psychology and Christian counseling and Christian uh, literature along these lines. Very commonly, it's a common thought in Christianity and Christian counseling that God made us the way we are. In certain books with, with young ladies that have certain body dysmorphic disorder, eating disorders of various kinds where they look at their body and they're not happy with their body. and th- You'll see this thought in Christian literature. God made you the way you are. And it was his design for you to have the eye color you have, for you to have the nose shape that you have, for you to have the body in, in proportion that you have. It was his design. And shouldn't you thank God and rejoice that he made you the way you are? What do you think about that line of reasoning? It doesn't work very well if you're not made well. She said it doesn't work very well if you're not made well. So the kid born with, <laughs> the kid born with spinal bifida, with anencephaly, with congenital heart defects, with, with uh, you know, Down syndrome or whatever else it might be, did God decide to create that child with all these defects? No. Do we get to go to God and say, Bible says in Psalms 51, that we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. God, you made Adam and Eve without sin. Why did you make me a sinner? Can we lay at God's doorstep the fact we're sinners? Did God make us sinners? No. No, this is all a lie. And, and, and here's, here's one for you. Aren't you glad when you look in the mirror, this is not as good as it gets? <laughs> I mean, think it through. If God made us this way, aren't you glad that this isn't as good as he can do? Yet. Can't he do better than this? Aren't you looking forward to a new body without any defects and aches and pains and need for glasses and braces and wrinkles and all these things that we have? Aren't you? This is not as good as it gets. Praise the Lord for that. Okay? God did not make us like this. We are like we are because the whole planet, all of nature, groans under the weight of sin. We are marred. We are defective. We are not as God designed us to be. So we can't lay God's doorstep. So that line of reasoning is, is out of there. We, can't, we create children in our image. So God don't make no trash. is wrong. That's exactly right. Well, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. God doesn't make any trash. He made three human beings that we have biblical record of. Adam, Eve, Jesus. And when they came from God's hand, they were all perfect without sin. Yeah, so go. No, it's true. God makes no trash. But the, the lie is when they put it together with this, because it never has that statement alone. You never see a t-shirt that says, God don't make no trash. That's right. What you see is a t-shirt that says, God made me the way I am, and God don't make no trash. That's a lie. God didn't make us the way we are. Or it's, we can then actually hold him accountable for that. We struggle with sin. So if we go back to the beginning of the controversy, Satan was ticked off because he wasn't allowed to create something he knew was being created. And yet here we live on this planet that's totally polluted by sin. And it's my understanding this is the only place that create that kind of creation, the creation of children, 
takes place. To me, that just blows the top off of what love is. I mean, we're loved much because we sin much. Or forgiven much. Yeah, it says, those who are forgiven much, love much. Yes. In Psalms 51, you're talking about, it says we come from the womb centers. Now, how can we come from the womb centers as an as a infant? That's exactly right. HIV-infected man and HIV-infected woman get together and have a child, and the child is born HIV-infected. But it's my, my interpretation is that I had, of uh, been in as a pastor one time. He explained that the sin that we are born with is actually the separation that we're born with that you were talking about earlier. We come from the root womb separated from God. But why are we separated from God? Because of the, the initial sin of no. I mean, you can put it at them. Yeah, it was their initial sin that caused us, but that's not why we remain separated. Uh, the initial sin of Adam and Eve didn't keep Enoch from walking into heaven. The initial sin of Adam and Eve didn't keep Elijah from riding into heaven. The initial sin of Adam and Eve didn't keep Moses from walking in and seeing God face to face. So it's not the initial sin of Adam and Eve that keep us separated from God. The reason you and I are separated from God is because we're born with the condition that Adam and Eve infected themselves with. We are born selfish. We are born egocentric. A baby does not come into the world looking to minister to other people. <laughs> Babies come into the world all about themselves. It's all about baby. Baby's needs all the time. Isn't that true? Yeah. Okay. Egocentric. Self-centered. That's an infection. It's a condition. It's a state of being that you and I didn't choose. So the HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman get together, have a child. The child's born HIV-infected. What did the child do wrong? The child didn't do anything wrong, so it's not our fault. We don't have guilt for the fact we're born this way. But we're still born in a condition without remedy that is terminal. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the guilt, the fault for the fact we're born this way goes to Adam and Eve. They're the one who made an intelligent choice to bring this condition upon the race. But this condition, even though the HIV-infected baby didn't do anything wrong, it still has a condition without remedy will kill it. That's us. We have a condition without God's remedy results in death. The wages of sin is death. Sinfulness separates from God. And so it ultimately does separate us from God, but the reason is our condition is at variance with the law of love. So, Wednesday's lesson, the last paragraph talks about God's holiness. Um, it says, God's holiness does not tolerate sin, but actively reacts against it. Um, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Habakkuk 1.13. God's natural hatred for sin made necessary the role of a mediator and so forth and so on. So, first off, what does it mean God's holiness does not tolerate sin but reacts against it? Is God's holiness something separate from his intellect? Something other than his personhood? Something other than his love? Something outside his character? Is it a reflex that God has no control over? Is it an instinct that God is obliged to react to? What does it mean that God's holiness does not tolerate sin? Oh, did you hear this? Yes. You see, I mean, we did a program a while back called 180 Degrees Backwards. You see how much in Christian thought is 180 degrees backwards. She said it so beautifully. It shouldn't it be the other way around that sin doesn't tolerate being in God's presence very well. Hasn't God been tolerating sin for thousands of years and his infinite forbearance and patience? I think there's evidence to support that. He didn't react against it, essentially. But we can still see it this way. Does God react in anger, in vengeance, in wrath? No. But does God 
seek to destroy sin? Absolutely. Does God seek to destroy sinners? No. 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 See, a big difference. God is seeking to destroy sin, isn't he? Yes, absolutely. But I, I think that's exactly right. I think sin does not tolerate well. And so when Christ appears in his glory, what does it say that all those who are steeped in sin will do? They run away from him. You see? It's not that he doesn't tolerate them. They don't tolerate him. Doesn't he just hate what sin does to us? It, it separates yes. us from him. It destroys us. It causes us pain or an anguish because of sin. That's what he hates. Of course. Does a parent hate cancer in their child? Absolutely. Why? Because it's destroying their child. God hates sin, absolutely, because it destroys that which he loves. How does God seek to destroy sin? First off, what is sin? Separation from God. Sin results in separation from God. Sin results from believing a lie. That's right. Believing a lie. And so lies about God result in? Fear and selfishness. So its root, sin's two elements are lies about God and selfishness. So how does God destroy? Truth. Truth destroys lies. Love destroys selfishness. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of? Truth and love. God is seeking to destroy sin by a revelation of truth and the pouring out of love. These are his methods. Don't let any preachers tell you God is going to destroy sin by the exercise of overwhelming might and power. No, no, no. These are lies. And the reason this happens is because they take texts from Scripture where it uses this powerful language and they don't actually define from Scripture what the language means. But... Truth and love are the means to be used. And thus it says in Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, presented in love, leaving people free. Truth and love are the means to be used. So blood is love. Christ said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And his blood, as it said earlier, represents his life. His life is the perfect life of God, the perfect character of God, which is God is love. I will pour my love into their hearts. We become partakers of the divine nature. We must internalize, ingest into our hearts and minds God himself, his character, his methods, his principles, his truths. We become like him as we partake of him and spend time with him. So yes, we internalize all that. It's not a work that we do. It's a supernatural work that is done in us as we trust Him. What does it mean to be born again? Be born again means to have selfishness and fear replaced with selflessness, love. So Peter, when he loved Christ for the three and a half years, said, if everyone else gives their life, uh, runs away, I won't, I'll give my life. Jesus said, you're going to deny me before the cock crows three times. Peter loved Christ. He wasn't lying. He meant what he said. But even though he loved Christ, up until his fall at the denial, he still loved himself more than Christ. It was after his denial that self died and he loved Christ more than himself. And love replaced his need to protect himself. Up until that point, and this is what we read in Revelation chapter 12, those who are ready to meet Christ, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. So rebirth is being changed from people who love God and love others more than we love ourselves. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have 
gone to such extreme lengths to bring us the truth, to win us back to unity, to back to oneness, to bring this universe back into harmony again. We know that you hate sin with a perfect hatred because it destroys those you love, but you love those of us who are sick with it with a perfect love. And we pray that you will pour out your spirit of truth and love to set our minds free from lies, win us back to trust, fear our hearts from fear and selfishness that we can move forward, giving ourselves as you have given yourself for others, that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.